All right, welcome back. Thanks for joining us as we continue through 1 Timothy. Yesterday we left off in the fifth chapter. Uh, we were through the 20th verse. Today we try to finish this last bit of the fifth chapter. Uh, again, in this section here, the context, if you weren't with us, uh, no problem. But Paul is giving increasingly specific and increasingly personal instructions to Timothy, who finds himself as a, a young man in a position of church leadership. And, and yesterday, Paul shared some thoughts on sort of managing other leaders. And today, I, I would say Paul narrows the focus specifically to some of the things that are under Timothy's input and some of the things that he'll call to do. So uh, we'll read a few verses, then we'll stop and, and talk about them. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels... I warn you to keep these instructions without prejudice, doing nothing on the basis of partiality. Do not ordain anyone hastily, and do not participate in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but take a little wine for the sake of your stomach and frequent ailments. The sins of some are conspicuous, and proceed them to judgment, while the sins of others follow them. So also the good works are conspicuous, and even when they are not, they cannot remain hidden. So let's stop there. Uh, we may we may move on from there, but we'll see how far we get. So very interesting. As Paul, this is really the first kind of strong language we've seen directed at Timothy. We have seen. Paul say strongly worded things to Timothy about others or about the role of leadership. But here he says, I warn you. And this is an interesting phrase from Paul. Um, I I urge you, I compel you. um, It will not go well if you don't listen to me. I'm trying to keep you from disaster. I warn you to keep these instructions without prejudice. And I think this is most clearly Paul speaking to Timothy as a kind of equal, as a leader. He is sharing with Timothy the importance, the absolute essentialness of being a leader that is fair, that is without prejudice. And, you know, the the personal, one's personal bias is dangerous in leadership because it it leads us astray. It takes us to false conclusions. And this is, I think, for good reason, the most blatantly that Paul has talked to Timothy. Yeah, it is highly individualized. And in that, I think it's also highly revealing. Um, And particularly some of the things uh, that follow verse uh, 21 here, you know, verse 23 specifically as we look to that. Uh, But before we get to that, there are some moments in Scripture where biblical scholars uh, who have spent, you know, their entire life, uh, their career, reading the Scriptures closely, where they see connections between New Testament and Old Testament, sometimes even within uh, those books themselves, the New Testament or the New Testament, and they... They point out, hey, this is at least a resonance if it's not 
you know, if Paul doesn't have this in mind, it certainly seems interesting. And that happens actually here today. So I want to throw this up so that you can see it. Um, notice verse 21, presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels. Has this idea of a, a heavenly court. It's a very uh, popular idea that God sits on the thr throne surrounded by all these celestial beings. What I've thrown up here uh, comes from the book of Deuteronomy. Here this is Moses talking to the people of Israel, verse 19. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I set before you life and death blessings and cursings. Um, choose life so that you and your descendants may live. Here you have a leader, a leader in Israel, making a point to the people of Israel. Here's this choice in front of this whole heavenly cohort. Here's this choice. It's interesting that the Apostle Paul writing Timothy frames it that way. Paul was a person of the scripture. So whether or not he had this direct passage in mind, the commentator that I was looking at here pointed that out. And I think that's helpful to be reminded uh, that the Old Testament is living underneath the surface of this text. Whether that's an explicit and intentional reference, it's certainly within the vein that this is a kind of thing that would be shared. So if the angels stuck out to you, that may help you sort of get a sense for how that fits. Maybe it's less about our idea of angels and more about this idea that this is really serious, you know, that I say to you in front of God and all of those beings around him, this is important. Um, we saw that in the Deuteronomy text, and it's interesting we see it here today. Yeah, there's a tough balance here. I, I think from a leadership perspective, even just from a discipleship perspective, there's a really tough balancing act here. On the one hand, Paul says, you know, do do these things without prejudice, doing nothing on the basis of partiality. And so whenever we make an assumption about someone, whether they belong to, you know, a different group, a, a different race, a different political party, whether we've had a bad experience with the past or we've heard that they're this thing or that thing, they're lazy or they're whatever it is, when we make an assumption we make it incredibly difficult to then be fair to what the actual scenario is because we've we have prejudged that's what the word prejudice means we've prejudged that person not on the basis of their actual merit but on some other thing and and the assumption in that really from the scripture is this kind of idea that if we pay attention things can be somewhat obvious. You know, fruit speaks for itself. And so one doesn't need to be partial. One doesn't need prejudice. In other words, be the kind of leader who makes judgments based on what really is and not what you think is. And, and, and that's a strong call for pastors, for others. You know, there are times that whenever we jump to conclusion, there are times that we're going to miss significantly, and it's going to create issues instead of solving issues. And so I, I think, you know, I think this is a really helpful word, Michael. And again, I think it shows some of the wisdom with which Paul broaches the subject of leadership. Clint, I think it's hard to not smile uh, when you read verse 22 as a Presbyterian. Uh, don't ordain anyone hastily. Yeah. Uh, because on one hand, we are like, yes, preach it. On the other hand, 
Presbyterians have been called the frozen chosen, and the truth is we often move very slowly as a group of people. So that this is like a patron text for us, but there are church traditions that do move very quickly. And in fact, we've seen just previously in this book, you know, the instruction, um, don't move someone up quickly, you know, make sure that they've spent time in the faith. And we talked about uh, the importance of letting someone experience the hills and the valleys of faith, that there's something meaningful that comes with the maturity of a Christian who spent some time living out the difficult complexity of the faith. That said, I, I do think it is fascinating he pairs that idea of, you know, take it slowly, uh, make sure that you know the person, uh, take some stock of who they are before you ordain them, before you lay hands on them. Uh, but then adding to that, uh, just adding to the sentence, and do not participate in the sins of other, but keep yourself pure. It's it's striking how to us this may seem like the drunk drawer of advice, but I think as a pastoral leader, the, these things all blend together. There's a sense in which, hey, slow down, don't pick people hastily, uh, don't be uh, picking and choosing one person over another, uh, be fair in your assessments. By the way, that takes time as well. And then, you know, to say, hey, when you see people going astray, don't add yourself to their number. There's going to be times you need to take a different path. And all of these are applicable. Um, they, they all are sort of on the ground kind of helpful words of advice from a wiser uh, pastor. But, you know, if we were just quickly reading through this, it, it, they may seem somewhat disconnected. Yeah, I, I think, you know, these are the kind of words that are very that very much speak to a context of church leadership. You know, a lot of damage can be done by moving someone into a leadership position before they're ready. Um, you, d you don't want to be unduly slow in that. But the reality is moving too quick generally will do more damage than taking too much time, though you'd, you'd like to get it right in the middle. And then this is the back half of this verse is really great. Do not participate in the sins of others. And you think about what that means. So the, the person who wants to argue, the person who wants to fight, the person who slanders you and you respond by slandering them, or you defend yourself, but you do so angrily and, and, um, pointedly and you, you rush to judgment of someone else. And I, I, I think again, having lived sort of behind the scenes. And this isn't unique to pastors, but it's it's the seat that I sit in, so I think that I, I it's the vantage point that I have. You know, it, it it is difficult to keep oneself out of the fray sometimes. And this is true of all of us. I think this is true in any leadership situation. I think this is just true relationally. And so I think these are really challenging words and very wise words. Do not participate in the sins of others. Keep yourselves pure. You know, I, I think very few of us think of others. We, because of the way Presbyterians talk about sin, we sort of maybe have minimized the idea that others really can drag us down. Now, I don't mean that it's their fault. Uh, we are always responsible for our own sin. But the truth is that sometimes Others provide an opportunity for us to go the wrong path, and we take it. And I, and I think these words reflect that. Yeah, it, it's interesting to uh, Clint as we look to verse twenty-three here. Yeah, how 
uh, how strange maybe this verse sounds uh, to different people. Uh, There are some Christian traditions that would forbid alcohol in any form. Uh, They kind of, I think, quickly read past this and say it's an ancient thing. It was a health thing uh, that people didn't drink water safely. Um, And then other people look to this, and I think this is a more compelling case, um, that fundamentally a part of the teachers that Paul is rebuking here in Ephesus are those who are claiming that that wine is off limits. It, it may be one of those things that they've said, no, it can't be part of a diet. If that's the case, uh, the reason I find that so interesting is because when you're a young leader and you find yourself in the midst of a congregation, it is very easy to get turned upside down, especially when people are unhappy. And if there are folks in the congregation saying, you can't be faithful as a Christian and drink any wine— Paul here may be saying, not only are they wrong, drink in moderation, but but fundamentally, that's not a thing that you should let worry you or give you anxiety. And it is easy as a young person like Timothy to become anxious about things that people are telling you you should and shouldn't do as a Christian leader. And if that's an accurate interpretation of the text, which of course I don't know if it is, uh, but if that is, I think what I find compelling about it is there's an older, wiser leader saying that that's not worth getting fussed about. You, you know, for your own sake, do this thing, but but that is not an issue of prime importance. Uh, we have more important things to worry about. Paul's already talked about them in this letter, um, but this isn't one that you need to worry about. And and if that's the case, Clint, I find that kind of wisdom is refreshing. And in the moments it's happened in my own life, I've been grateful for it. Yeah, th- this is an interesting verse for what it does and doesn't say. You know, it had been very, in- it would have been unusual for even a, a very young adult, what we would call teenager, in Paul's day and age, not to drink wine. Wine was safer than water; it's more available than water. So, how is it that Timothy is only drinking water? Is that a religious commitment? Is that a teaching that he's found somewhere? Is that just his own personal practice? But why is it the case that he's already not drinking wine is a question that hangs over this little part of the passage here. And then it's also clear that the answer, and and this would, you know, Michael, I think this is one of those situations when we try to make a verse speak something. It, it, Paul clearly has in here a medicinal idea. He, your frequent yeah. ailments and your stomach, and he believes that wine will be helpful. He's he's in no way, shape, or form engaging in some conversation about alcohol like we might in our day and age. Oh. He thinks of this medicinally. Now, the other thing that's that's sort of interesting about that from a, a pastor's standpoint, maybe it's just a personality standpoint, because I bet it's true of teachers and principals and people who run businesses. The first pastor I worked with carried a briefcase, and whenever he would open the briefcase, I would notice that there was a roll of Tums, and there's a bottle of aspirin, and there was, you know, there's all these sort of stress-related medicines. And so when I read this, I I can't help but smile and think, oh, this, this young guy is probably has an ulcer. He probably, <laughs> he probably is so stressed by the people in this congregation that he's trying to deal with and by the challenges that he faces and his sort of 
desire to get it right and his fear of getting it wrong and standing up to these people, it, it is probably literally eating at him. And Paul is trying to speak to that and say, you know, hey, you got to take care of yourself, which is a, an interesting piece of advice. Yeah, I, I don't know if that's true, but I, I feel like that kind of personification jumps off the page. Yeah, uh, it, yeah. It, I mean, clearly Paul has an insight here that is that is deeper than the text. He knows yeah. something of Timothy's health, and he's making a suggestion as to why as to why it's wine and why he's only drinking water. We, you know. That kind of stuff we can only guess at. And, but this is what's interesting about 23 as it leads into these other texts here, Clint, is that in one moment he's talking to Timothy almost, as you say, with the idea of health in mind, a very personal mm-hmm. kind of conversation. Look how quickly that shifts into a critique of others, which I think is is fascinating because it suggests that some of that teaching that has come before though it has been an affirmation or encouragement to Timothy, may also be a critique to these other parties. Because we don't know the nature of these debates, some of these things that we've seen here about not being prejudiced, about not ordaining hastily, about not participating in the sins of others, this may both be an encouragement to Timothy, but also a a critique or challenge of others in the community who we're advocating for the opposite position. So here, this idea, hey, the sins of some people are conspicuous. Wouldn't it be really, really interesting to know who the some people were? Because mm-hmm. <laughs> we don't have their names. Uh, that you know, That's not in the scripture. But clearly, these two have some idea of what they're talking about. And so I think that that is sort of coursing throughout the story. It, it, there's clearly more here than just, hey, uh, you may be a little anxious, Timothy, take a little wine for your stomach. There, there may be several layers of encouragement and critique buried under this. This is, I think, one of those places, Michael and Timothy, that you don't have to have church experience. You don't have to have leadership experience. I, I think we all, as Christians, live within this the spectrum that this verse paints for us. We could all in our life point to some people who have very messy public sins. They struggled with addiction. They made terrible choices. It blew up in a public way. They handled themselves poorly. They got caught doing something. And we could say there there are those moments where our sin is sort of on the outside and it is apparent. And there's a danger in that. But Paul says, never forget the sins of other people Follow them. You don't see them. You you only find out about them later. And I suspect we all have that experience too. We all know someone that we respected and that we looked up to and that people generally held to be a quote-unquote good person. And it turns out that they also had a struggle that was perhaps less public. It was not well-known. It was private. And I, you know, what I hear in this text, and, I, and I'll be honest that I think I'm probably pushing it a little further than Paul does, but I, th- I think what I hear in this text, at least as I understand it from my vantage point, is don't forget we're all broken. And some of that brokenness is obvious, and some of it we keep hidden away, 
But whoever you're dealing with, there is brokenness there because it lands on all of us. And we all have an experience of it, and we all have to wrestle with it. And it comes out in different ways, but it is in there. And and then he takes it to the positive, and so also are good works are conspicuous. You can see when good works are done. And if you can't see it, they won't remain hidden. You can't hide being good. You can hide sin. You can't hide goodness. Goodness comes out. Uh, Just really interesting words. I don't know how Timothy received them, but I I find in them, uh, verse 24 is one of my, um, just a personal verse that I have gained a lot from that I've appreciated through the years. I, I think there is a ton of depth in it. If you pushed 24, uh, let me just push it just a tiny bit further, Clint. So Paul, I, I think, textually seems to be pretty clearly making a case here. Uh, he, to the sins of others, it's likely he's speaking of these opponents, those who are hypocrites, those who uh, have been very clearly critiqued throughout the course of this letter. That's, that's who Paul is likely talking about. But uh, just as a matter of observation, um, to your point, our sins that are public are often those things that, for right or for wrong, we've decided are the hot-button things. These are the sins that we get worked up about. These are the sins that when we're when they're found out, they will transform the arc of a person's life. You know, you get caught uh, with someone other than your partner. You get caught with money that you stole. You get caught... Uh, taking a thing that didn't belong to you, whether, you know, however it might be. But what's interesting is some of the sins that we commit, we do so for the sake of doing good. In other words, there are moments that I walked alongside people who were put in unbearably difficult circumstances, and they stubbornly proceeded to do what they thought was best. And that thing, maybe it was, or maybe it wasn't best, but it, it, left a tale of damage. It hurt this relationship because they were unbending in their goal, or they kept moving on a thing and it actually started hurting the situation rather than helping. But my point is to just further complexify it, Clint, that because we're human and because our brokenness is deeply embedded in our experience of the world, it's part of who we are. It's it's a, a thing that is inescapable. It's part of our own identities we sometimes find ourselves with that sin trailing us, even with our best effort. Not the stuff that we would be ashamed for other people to see, but even some of the stuff we're proud of or that we worked hardest to achieve. Within them, there is a kind of sinfulness that if we're willing to confess or able to see is also incredibly damaging. And so that's a very complicated way to land at the same place you ended, is just to say, I think we construct for ourselves this idea that we're generally good people trying to do good things. And to whatever extent we hide behind that image, I think we fail to see the true reality of the sinfulness that that lives inside us, even at our best. And that's not to beat ourselves up, Clint. It's just to say that if we pursue goodness here, it it will do the rest of the work. Yeah. Instead of trying to hide behind an image of, well, as long as people don't know, then it doesn't matter. Yeah, I think if you if you tried to boil this down to, a, say, a simple like children's message type takeaway, Michael, it, it's this, that if you do good, you don't have to worry about hiding anything. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know... It, it, Paul's not quite that explicit with it, but I think, you know, if you if you dig around in this passage, 
I, I think you pull that out. If if you if you do good, you have nothing to hide. You you don't have to worry about that. And I, I think that's in there. I think that's yeah, that's a good catch. Uh, thanks for being with us here today. It's always good to spend time with you, friends. Uh, we look forward to continuing the conversation tomorrow as we turn into Chapter 6. Of yeah, cha- some challenging stuff tomorrow. Um, be, be an interesting conversation. Hope you can join us. Thanks for being here today. Thank you.